Hello, this is Mark Peacock, and welcome to the Travel Commons Podcast. This is Travel Commons Podcast number 192, recorded Thursday, January 26th, 2023. Two topics on this edition of the Travel Commons Podcast, travel planning, booking direct or through a third party, and gin conquers the world. Coming to you from the Travel Commons studios in Nashville, Tennessee, belated happy birthday, both Gregorian and Lunar, to uh, to everyone. Uh, I haven't done any travel since the last episode. Instead, I'm starting the year off, as many do, by doing travel planning, trying to lay out a 2023 travel calendar so we don't slouch past the days and then, I don't know, say in August, to look back and say, well, where'd the year go? Back at episode 159, I talked about how travel planning would traditionally kick off uh, the week after Christmas, although I'd have to say that given episode 159 was posted in January 2020, just two months before the first wave of COVID lockdowns, my timing on that probably, I don't know, wasn't the greatest. A year later, January 2020, in episode 171, I tried it again, ticking through five travel planning tips for COVID times. And these, as you would imagine, were all about agility, paying attention to cancellation rules, monitoring last-minute changes in lockdowns and health requirements. But now, two years later, with COVID cases down and travel volumes pretty much back up to 2019 levels, I expect folks will revert back to their old travel planning patterns. Back in my travel tech CIO days, right before Christmas, we'd always lock down all our systems and then put on extra capacity, which, let me tell you, kids, back in the pre-cloud days meant rolling actual servers, real live physical equipment, uphill, through the snow, onto the data center raised floor so that we could handle the spikes in search volume. And while we see some minor spikes from the systems that travel agents used, uh, the biggest volumes came from online sites like Expedia, Booking.com, sites that are popular with leisure travelers more so than business travelers. But now in 2023, I'm guessing actually that the Chinese are chief among those rushing back to their pre-COVID travel planning after the government quit their zero COVID policies. Indeed, on December 26th, within a half hour of the announcement that China's borders were fully reopening, searches for international travel on China's biggest online site, Trip.com, surged back to pre-COVID levels, again, within a half hour. The top search destinations were Southeast Asia, the U.S., the U.K. Now, remember, pre-COVID, the Chinese were by far the largest source of international tourism spending, $255 billion, a billion with a B, which is 70% more than the second place, U.S., and we came in at $150 billion. So if you, like me, thought that popular vacation destinations were crowded last year, just just wait. Just wait for this summer for what I'm guessing will be a second wave, maybe a Chinese tsunami of revenge travel. So following up, back in August, episode 188, 
was all about tips for avoiding travel chaos. I recorded it at the tail end of a summer of travel woes after a 4th of July holiday weekend that was seen as a complete train wreck with 1,100 canceled flights and 4,000 delays, to which, as we all know, Southwest said, hold my beer, and canceled almost 16,000 flights between Christmas and New Year's. To which then the FAA said, wait, I want to play too, and disrupted over 11,000 flights in one morning. When the root cause for both was found to be old, out-of-date technology, all the gray-haired IT guys nodded to each other and repeated their mantra, technical debt is a bitch. Indeed, Southwest said its Q4 2022 profits took an $800 million hit from this debacle. You know, just saying, even half that would have funded a whole lot of fixes to that old scheduling system. But looking back at those tips that I ran through back in August, pack so you can carry on, and if you can't, then spread everybody's clothes across all the checked bags, you know, they they were pretty much spot on, as was the discussion in episode 190 about how adding Apple AirTags to my travel tech stack saved me time in Ajita when United lost my luggage. With all the stories about piles of stranded luggage from the bomb cyclone and Southwest cancellations, AirTags are having a moment. They've proven to be a critical must-have if you check a bag and, well, and, of course, have an iPhone. Now, for Android users, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer. People who spelunk through new Android code think Google is working on its own AirTag-like tracker. But, again, when I think back on it, I think I missed a couple of things. First, I should have pointed back to and recapped my conversation in episode 164 with Brett Holzhauer, a travel credit card analyst now at CNBC. And he and I talked about trip cancellation, trip interruption, and baggage insurance that many people don't realize they get when they charge their trip on a travel credit card. I don't know, maybe the tip there is before you book your trip, pull out the credit card benefit summaries so that you know which card will give you the best protection. And then the second tip I'd add is take pictures of your checked luggage both outside and then the contents inside. The pictures of the bags will help you answer the describe what your bag looks like question on the airline's lost baggage form. The pictures of the inside will help with that baggage insurance claim. But I don't know, just the fact that we got to think about all this just to have someone take us and our stuff from point A to point B in some sort of a reliable fashion. Ah, Jesus, what a broken system. Now, in what has become, I think, going on a two-year thread through Travel Commons episodes about international travel planning, I've ended up talking about COVID travel rules, COVID testing, global entry, passport applications. So on one of the trips that we were planning over the past couple of weeks is to hit the Tulip Festival in Holland, the country, the Netherlands, not the town in Michigan, which can screw you up if you don't look closely at your Google search results. The Tulip Festival in the Netherlands Netherlands is in April, while the one in Western Michigan is in May. And that initial lack of Google input box precision using Holland rather than the Netherlands, which ended up surfacing that May date, sent me down a whole nother search path because deep in some random brain fold, I remembered a May start date for ETIAS. ETS? I don't know how to pronounce that acronym, but it stands for the European Travel Information and Authorization System, which is the EU's version of the U.S. ESTA, 
the Electronic System for Travel Authorization. Now, this whole e-acronym alphabet soup is pretty much just electronically plugging the travel information gap for folks who don't need a visa to enter a country. Now, the U.S. started it first, another recommendation from the 9-11 Commission, but unlike Real ID, ESTA actually got implemented in 2009. It started off free, but it's now 21 bucks per person for two years, with most of that going to fund Brand USA, the U.S. Tourist Promotion Agency. The EU's ETS, E-T-I-A-S, I gotta look up a pronunciation for it. Anyhow, it's cheaper, only seven euros per person, and for three years. It got started later in 2018, and its go-live date has been kicked down the road a couple of times now, from 2022 to May 2023, which is what that random neuron in my brain recalled. But I guess I missed the latest push, which happened back in August, that delayed E-T-I-A-S another six months. So now the go-live is November 2023. Still nothing like the 17-year and counting delay for Real ID, but as it turns out, I ended up just sort of losing a couple of hours of my life in a click spiral because I don't have to worry about it till next year. And hey, if you've got any travel worries or stories, questions, comments, tips, rants, the voice of the traveler, send them along to comments, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com. You can always send a Twitter message to M. Peacock, post your thoughts on the Travel Commons Facebook page or the Instagram account at Travel Commons. There you go. Or, as always, old school on the website, comments underneath the show notes post at travelcommons.com. The first topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is travel planning, book direct or through a third party. Chris Chufo, longtime friend of the podcast, pointed me to a recent Washington Post column by Christopher Elliott on the great debate, as he put it, between booking direct with an airline or hotel or car rental company versus using a third party, a travel agent or an online site like Booking.com or, say, Airbnb. It's an ongoing debate because there's no straightforward answer. And it's one that I personally straddle when booking travel. But when I think about it, what the post column didn't really articulate is that I think the decision point hinges really on relationships and leverage. When booking flights, trains, rental cars, I almost always book direct because if there's a problem, a delay, a cancellation, I can work directly with the airline or the rental company to figure out an alternative. Now, when I have booked through a third party, most recently back in 2019, when Amex was giving a five times multiplier on membership rewards points for booking through them as the travel agent instead of direct. When I did that back in 2019, and then I had a flight cancellation in Charlottesville, Virginia, which uh, prior listeners will know was a pretty common occurrence in Charlottesville, the carrier just wouldn't talk to me. You need to talk to your agent, which I did while standing in front of the ticket counter at the airport, looking at the flight status display saying canceled, and then telling the Amex agent the current situation because the flight status hasn't yet been updated in their system yet. After which the agent said, hold on, I need to make a call to the airline because it's so close to departure. I can't do anything in, the, in my system. So basically, they're just making the same call I just got off of. I mean, third parties really don't have much leverage over carriers, airlines, trains, even rental cars. And so there's no real value in putting them between me and the carrier, especially when I'm trying to move fast to swerve a delay or cancellation. 
especially a carrier where I've got status, the marker of a relationship that often delivers more than an agent can. Hotels can be a bit different. I'll book direct with the big chains, Marriott, Hilton, again, places where I have status. My experience has been that the travel agents are more flexible when I need to make a change, and it feels like, though I don't have any hard data on this, I get upgraded more often by the front desk. And if I have, I don't know, say a billing issue with a Marriott property, it feels like corporate Marriott looks at my lifetime titanium status and gives me the benefit of the doubt. However, with independent properties where I haven't stayed before and this is a one-time transaction and so I don't have any leverage from an ongoing relationship or, say, offer the potential for future business, the situation is uh, murkier. An Airbnb or an Expedia who can see future revenue from me might be more willing to help me out with a problem. But the property has a financial incentive for me to book directly with them. It saves them a commission that, I don't know, could be as high as, say, 40%. So if I'm going someplace new, I usually start off searching with a third-party site, Airbnb, Booking.com, to see what's available. If I end up narrowing down to an independent place and I'm going to stay there for more than a couple of days, I'll flip over to their website. Can I get a better price booking direct? And I'll check out TripAdvisor. Can I trust them? If both are yeses, then I'll book direct because I still have one fallback protector, my credit card company. Last year, for our last night in Sicily, we booked a hotel room that was, I don't know, maybe a five-minute walk from Catania Airport because we had an early flight out the next morning. We found it and booked it on Booking.com. It was just the path of least resistance. So on that last night, driving back with our friends from Terramina, yes, before the White Lotus put it on the map, we got to the airport but couldn't find the hotel. Google Maps landed us in front of some apartment buildings in a big dirt parking lot. After a couple of laps around the block and a long WhatsApp message stream, we found out that what we booked wasn't a hotel room, but was one of these apartments. And when somebody remotely unlocked the door for us, it looked a bit, no, actually, no, it looked a lot like a third-rate romance, low-rent rendezvous sort of place. Our friend said, we're not leaving you here, and we beelined over to a real airport hotel where I grabbed one of their last rooms while Irene canceled the Love Shack on Booking.com. Now, as you might imagine with that late cancellation, the Love Shack didn't want to refund our payment. That wasn't really all that surprising. However, I was a bit surprised when Booking.com didn't help us, in spite of me pointing out that the property description on their site was completely false. So last resort, I disputed the charge with Chase, which was the card that I had used on Booking.com for this stay. Chase called me. I told him the story, sent them screenshots of the property listing, which surprisingly, unsurprisingly, was still up unchanged on Booking.com, along with a couple of pictures that I'd taken with my phone, just in case. And we've had this Chase card for over 10 years. It's our main credit card, so we spend a lot on it, and we've never disputed a hotel stay on it before. So I think we had leverage from what, for Chase, has been a very profitable relationship. Two weeks later, we got our money back. So the second topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is Gin Conquers the World. 
So here's a bit of a change up. Usually when I'm talking about drinking on this podcast, it's about craft beer. There's even a beer tab on the top of the Travel Commons website that takes you to a page with all the podcast episodes and blog posts that talk about beer. What makes a great tap room, my best restaurants, bars, and tap rooms of 2021. Note to self, got to write the 2022 version of that sometime soon. But back in October, in episode 190, when interviewing Jeff Cialetti, editor-in-chief of Craft Spirits magazine, about his new book, Imbibing for Introverts, our conversation took a, a bit of a left turn, and we got talking about how gin has spread across the globe. Let me ask you this. Through your travels, have you noticed any changes, any trends over the past few years as you've been sitting at bars drinking alone? One thing that I find incredibly striking, and this is worldwide, I had mentioned gin. Gin has reconquered Europe. I was in Berlin and I was on a panel with somebody. He said that now Germany's got a thousand gin brands. Like five years ago, they had barely any. So it's like. I'll tell you, for me, it's either going to be craft beer or it's gin. I just think about it in Scotland and Spain. I was just in Croatia a few weeks ago. Guy walks out, has some Croatian gin, and they were doing gin tonic, so the big Spanish goblet style. And I said, well, I'd really like to taste that gin without all the tonic and everything. I want to see what you guys are doing with it. And back to your point about endearing yourself sometimes, the guy was like, really? You really want to? It's like, yeah, absolutely. Just just gin and glass. Just give me a little bit. And, and he said, oh, no, that's great. And off he came and brought the regular gin tonic. And then there was a little sidecar of just gin neat so I could taste it alone. Yeah, no, and I was just in a bar in, in Stuttgart on Saturday night. It was called Botanical Affairs, tiny kind of corner pocket little bar that all they have is, is gin. I mean, it's not even like you go in there, oh, you could have a beer, and they specialize in gin. I mean, everything was a gin cocktail. You know, it's like that's all you could order. And they had so many different brands from all over the world. And, and you know, and, and you mentioned Spain. They get most of the credit, I think, for elevating a gin and cocktail and turning it into yeah, kind of a luxurious. It really is. It's, yeah, it's, it's special. an experience but, now, you know. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. With the, the goblet glass and the yeah. garnish. And, the and a lot of people have stuff. adopted that, too. Even places here in the States, they're using it now. I've, I found it in a lot of places in the UK that use it. And Spanish get all the credit for it. Yeah. They didn't use it in Germany, though, which I found interesting. But interesting. Um, everywhere else seems to. <laughs> Now, there are always local, regional spirits to drink, bourbon in Kentucky, malt whiskey in Scotland and Ireland, soju in Korea, kind of the whole range of Eastern European fruit brandies, Palenka in Hungary, I mentioned Croatian, Rakia in the last episode. But it seems that gin has become the canvas, or I don't know, the freshly painted side of a building that young distillers want to tag with their sense of what's local. Maybe it's easier, they don't have to wrestle with expectations or regulations about what the local traditional spirit is. Also, maybe because it's easier to make. I mean, back in 2013, on our first visit to University of St. Andrews with our then high school junior, Claire, I found a local microbrewery, Eden Mill. Their story was that they wanted to be a Scotch whiskey distillery, but since whiskey is legally required to age in an oak barrel for at least three years, after they finished filling the barrels, they needed something else to generate cash 
now. And since the front end of making beer and malt whiskey are pretty much the same, craft beer seemed a pretty logical way to bridge that cash gap. Fast forward a couple of years to Claire's first year at St. Andrews, Eden Mill is still making beer, still waiting for their whiskey to come of age, but now they've added gin. Their updated story, since they already had a distillation column to make whiskey, they had everything they needed to make gin. They trucked in neutral spirits, similar to Everclear from at least my college days, but I'm sure it's what they were using was a bit classier. Run it through the distillation column over a basket of botanicals, dilute it to the right strength, bottle it, sell it right away. Now, if I'm an artisanal producer, maybe then I don't have to think as much about funding stainless steel and storage, and so can think more about how I want to express my locality, my culture, in that basket of botanicals at the top of the distillation column. Eden Mill, for example, sitting on the east coast of Scotland, would use local sea buckthorn berries. On a trip to Spain, I was served Nordais gin, or Nordais? Nordais, Nordais gin from Galicia, the most northwest part of Spain, the bit that sits on top of Portugal. It tasted of lemon verbena and eucalyptus and bay leaf botanicals that they say are native to Galician forests. Now, the Croatian gin I talked about with Jeff Cialetti was all about the local native juniper berries. It's an interesting twist on what has become a common complaint about global homogenization, that the world has become more the same now because of, I don't know, pick your favorite bugbear, the, the spread of global brands, Instagram, the ubiquity of English. Gin is the latest, you know, starting to crowd out the local native spirit scene, but with a twist, with that focus on native flavors. But with all the effort put into expressing these local botanicals, I guess I'm always surprised when bartenders want to serve them in the Spanish-style gin tonic that Jeff rightly notes seems to have just taken over bars everywhere. After giving me a whole spiel about the care the distiller has taken to infuse the locality into the gin, they then smother the one and a half ounces of that locality with six to seven ounces of imported tonic and a slice or two of of an imported orange or lemon or lime. So, no, for me, give me that local gin straight, maybe over one of those huge ice cubes so I can taste that local flavor that the distiller has been working to present. I, I don't know. I guess I'm swimming upstream against today's cocktail culture because I seem to be more interested in the distiller's art than the mixologist's. Okay, that's it. That's the End of Travel Commons podcast number 192. You can find us and listen to the current episodes on all the main podcast sites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Amazon Music. You can also ask Alexa, Siri, or Google to play Travel Commons on your smart speakers. You can click the link in this episode's description in your podcast app to get to the show notes page at travelcommons.com for a transcript. If you're not subscribed when you get there, there's a drop-down subscribe menu at the top of the page, and then also along the side of the page, you'll find links to the Travel Commons socials. And remember, if you've got a story, thought, comment, gripe, the voice of the traveler, send them along, text or audio file to comments, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com. 
M. Peacock on Twitter, write them on the Travel Commons page on Facebook or Instagram, or post them while you're there on the website at travelcommons.com. Thanks to everyone who's taken the time to send in emails, tweets, post comments on the website. I really do appreciate it. And hey, until we talk again, take care. I hope you're planning some fun trips. Thanks for stopping by the Travel Commons. Bye now. Bye.